Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Well, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, we're going to continue, I should say, our study through the book of Psalms, looking today at Psalm 74 and why, O God. Would you please join me now in prayer? O Lord, we are just reminded as we're about to look at at this uh, very personal and very challenging uh, psalm before us today, we're reminded, Lord, of our need for your grace. We're reminded that not only in the midst of difficult times and situations, but in every season of life, what, what we need, Lord, is your help. What we need is your grace. What we need is the help of your Holy Spirit. So, Lord, as we look at this passage, we, we confess those things. But, Lord, we also ask for the help of your Spirit to take these truths that we're about to discover today from Psalm 74. And I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see these truths in your word. But most importantly, Lord, not only would you open our eyes to see great and wonderful things from this psalm, but Lord, would you help us to take this psalm and apply it to the various circumstances and situations of our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 74. Psalm 74 says this, O God, why are you cast off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They have set up their own signs for signs. They, they were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees. In all its carved wood, they broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set up your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, We will utterly subdue them. They said to themselves, We will utterly subdue them. They burned at the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, and there is none among us who know how long. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. And yet God, my King, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. He divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day, yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs and a foolish people reviles your name. 
and do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beasts. Do not forget the life of your, your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. This is the reading of God's holy, precious word. And may God bless the preaching of his word and the hearing of it. Now, today we're going to look at Psalm 74. And as I just read, this psalm is lament. It's offered to God at one of the bitterest, one of the hardest times in the history of Israel's history. And it's ascribed to Asaph. Asaph was the chief musician in the time of David. and But, but since the, the psalm describes the burning of the temple which occurred centuries later during Nebuchadnezzar's conquest of Jerusalem in 587 BC. The author must have been a descendant of Asaph or a later office holder. Now, grieving for the fallen city and the temple and burdened even more by the eternal prospects of Israel, the psalmist cries an impassionate plea for God to remember and save his people in Psalm 74, 1-2, which says, O God, why do you cast us off forever? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old. And so what this, the first point that we're going to consider today is that God's people may suffer greatly. Now, this lament, as I was just talking about, it makes it clear that God's people will suffer greatly in the world. And one kind of attitude, the prosperity gospel suggests that you can have it all and eat your cake too, that that you can be wealthy and happy and and have all that you need just uh, by gathering wealth and confessing that to God. But this attitude suggests that true Christians never need to worry about trouble today. But the Bible says otherwise, as does our experience living in a post-fall world. In fact, Peter advised early Christians in 1 Peter 4.12, which says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. The Old Testament believers likewise endured many ordeals, and Psalm 74 records one of the worst. The first section of this psalm, it deals with the extent of this calamity. And here the Lord invites, uh, the uh, excuse me, the author invites the Lord to take a tour with him around the ruins of the holy city. Look with me at verse 3 of this psalm. It says, direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. And he points out the battle standards of the pagan armies in the city of God's dwelling, no doubt together with the emblems of their false gods in verse 4, which says, Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs. And verses 5 and 6 compare the enemy to axemen felling trees in the forest, like those swinging axes in a forest of trees, except that these men were hewing the gilded panels of the holy temple. And our text says, all is carved wood. They broke down with hatchets and hammers. And the temple building itself was put to the torch. Jeremiah 52, 13 records that Nebuchadnezzar burned the house of the Lord 
and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Asaph complains especially about the calamitous loss of Solomon's golden temple in verse 7. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profane the dwelling places of your name, bringing it down to the ground. And summing up the enemy's destruction, he points out that their aim was nothing less than to make a final end of God's people in verse 8. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. And it was with this genocidal intent that the Babylons burned the meeting places of God in the land in verse 8. Christians should realize that while worldly people will generally show hostility to them, there are times when the ungodly attain such unrestrained power that they seek to remove the godly once and for all. Later in Babylonia, where the remaining Jewish people were taken as captives, Haman the Agite sought to destroy all the Jews in Esther 3.6, as recorded in the book of Esther. And for a more recent example, in the aftermath of the Protestant Reformation, King Louis attained unchallenged power in France, revoking the Edict of Nantes it, that had promised freedom of religion to the Huguenots, and unleashed a savage persecution that drove nearly all the Bible-believing Christians from the land. Similar attempts at eradicating the Christian witness are taking place now where Muslim zealots are gaining control, such as Sudan and Turkey, and as we see in the news, they're having a rising influence all throughout America and in Europe as a whole. And now Psalm 74 recognizes that the suffering of the people of God comes with the full knowledge of God. And while the psalmist appeals to God to look at their affliction, it is not because he doubts God's awareness. Verse 1 makes very clear that Jerusalem was destroyed because God deliberately withdrew his protection. When it says, O oh God, why do you cast us off forever? John Calvin writes that the psalmist was convinced that God, had it not God been angry with them, the heathen nations would not have been permitted to take such license in injuring them. Now, Scripture makes it clear that Jerusalem fell and that the temple was burned because of the judgment of God on the idolatry of his people. And if they were determined to worship false gods, then God punished them by sending them to the virtual center of idolatry, Babylon, where they could experience the kind of life that results from evil worship, as we see in Jeremiah 16, 10-13. And when Asaph complained that pagan standards had been set up in God's city, the Lord might have reminded him that the faithless people of Israel had set up similar idols themselves. Now, it's not always the case that suffering Christians are being afflicted by God's chastening hand. In many cases, we think of the French Huguenots or the courageous Christians under persecution in the Middle East. And their affliction results from their valiant refusal to renounce Christ and the gospel of God. And in these cases, God is working through his people to advance his kingdom in ways that are hard to understand at the time. And whether our suffering is due to God's judgment or simply the cause for God's glory, believers must look to God and take our case to him, whether in repentance or with a kind of beleaguered, bewildered plea that we see in this psalm. Charles Spurgeon described this psalm as a model for afflicted Christians, 
offering the kind of prayer that God is faithful to answer, saying, we have here before us a model of pleading, a very rapture of prayer. It is humble, but very bold, eager, fervent, and effectual. And at the heart of this plea is not merely a lament for the affliction of God's people, but the panicked fear that it might always be this way. Maybe you feel that way today in the midst of your own situation. You wonder, Lord, how long is this going to last? How long is this pain? How long is this trial? How long is this situation? It seems to never end. Now, Asaph laments not only that God had abandoned Israel, but as verse 1 indicates that God would cast us off forever. In verse 11 concludes the opening lament asking the why question, saying this, why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? And yet the preceding verse asks the more urgent question of when. How long, O oh God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? It seems that one reason the psalmist felt anxiety over the duration of Israel's disgrace was a lack of sign from God. Verse 9 tells us this. We do not see our signs, there is no longer any prophet, and there is none among us who knows how long. And so the psalmist is lamenting the absence of God's word to the people when he says there is no longer any prophet, and therefore none among us knows how long. This is a remarkable statement given the prophecies of Jeremiah who foretold not only the fall and the destruction of Jerusalem, but also the 70-year duration of the Jewish captivity in Babylon in Jeremiah 25:11. But given the chaos of his times, we understand why the psalmist was ignorant of this revelation. The same excuse cannot be made in our own time today. Most Christians own numerous Bibles with various translations and study notes and commentaries and more. Ours is a day rich with theological and biblical resources and helps. Our problem, the reason that we lack knowledge of God's purpose and the plans and the hope that come from them, is that we do not read our Bibles. And many Christians today, they even refuse to attend a church where serious Bible teaching takes place, showing far more interest in social programs and even social entertainment instead. We do not give priority in our schedules to the study of God's word or the primacy in our churches to in-depth scriptural teaching. Now, this is why biblical literacy abounds. And I'm not talking about, you know what, you may not have a good church in your town. I'm not talking to you today. But I am talking to many of you. You have, there is a good church. The problem is, is that you want your preference uh, your preferences met in order for you to go to a church and sit under the preaching of God's word. And that is absolutely 100% sinful. You want the worship to be a certain way or you're not going to go to a church. That's sinful. You want the preaching to be a certain way. Now, I'm not saying that the per preaching shouldn't be excellent of good quality that the pastor shouldn't be preaching through the word i'm not talking about erroneous uh preaching where where the preacher makes it all about himself i'm not talking about erroneous worship that dishonors the lord of glory i'm talking about a church that opens the bible that preaches the bible that sings songs that are rich in god's word but you think that the preaching isn't good and you think that the worship isn't any good. 
That's what I'm talking about. There are too many Christians who are sitting on the sidelines. They think, I'll just go to the coffee shop. I'll just go to this place. And when you look at the churches in their area, there is a church. God always has a faithful people in every city, in every area, in every region, and all throughout our land and all throughout the world. It may take time to, to find that church, and it may mean, if there is none, that it might be time for you to move where there is one. Count the cost. How much is it worth to be under sound biblical preaching? It's worth every single cent. It's worth moving. It's worth finding a church where you can sit under the teaching of God's word, rightly divided and rightly preached, verse by verse, line by line, pointing you to Christ, to the glory of God. But but the reason that we have such great biblical and theological literacy today is that we have such spiritual lethargy today. We have such spiritual apathy today. And many Christians wonder, where is God? Where is God? When is, when is our land going to return to its prominence? As if that was the first priority for us as Christians. And what such an attitude reveals is the condition of our hearts. That we are not soft before the Lord. That we are not quick to see our need of God's grace in the gospel as revealed in the word, because let's be honest, we have stopped reading our Bible. We have stopped studying our Bible. We have stopped meditating on it. We have stopped memorizing it. We have, our ears might as well be plugged. Now, there are the hurts and there are the pains of our day, and they have a drastic effect on our hearts. I'm not discounting that. But but if you go look and I, and I encourage you to go look, Google the stats on the, uh, from the American Bible Society. Google the stats from George Barna's Arizona Christian University, the Worldview Report. And, and just marvel, go Google the state of theology for 2022 and marvel and be appalled at the state of the church today. And then if that's not enough, go look at what 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 sells uh, among Christians today? What books sell well among Christians? What are the top 100 books? And and the predominant uh, books that sell well, guess what they are? They are all self-help books. They all place me at the center. And so I, I go back to the point that I just said. Our problem, the reason that we lack knowledge of God's purposes and plans and the hope that comes from them is that we do not read our Bibles. We are biblically and theologically impoverished. We are biblically and theologically illiterate. And biblical illiteracy means, to be clear, you do not know key facts, key ideas. You don't know where to find them. You don't know where they are. Theological illiteracy means you have zero understanding of church history. You don't understand even the even something like the basics, like what happened at Nicaea and, and Chalcedon, which are absolutely critical to, to a biblical and theological orthodoxy, and, and even to responding to much of what's happening in our day. 
And this is, this is tragic. You have many Christians who think that they can even come to church. I don't need the preaching of God's word. I just need the fellowship. No. Uh, let me tell you something. I, I remember sitting in one of my pastor's office and he said, Dave, I know that you know what I'm going to tell you. I said, brother, you can always preach at me, please. Because you know what? The thing is, is the choir needs preaching too. You see, it isn't that I, I didn't know the information that he was telling me. It's that I needed the encouragement. I needed the reminder. And you know what? Sometimes I even need the instruction. Because we are all prone to forget. We are all prone to wander from the God that we love. We are all prone to to be to to forget and we need to be reminded we need to be reminded that we need to delight in the god who has revealed himself in his word the 66 books that constitute the word of god and we need to be reminded of this especially in the midst of affliction and intense suffering we need to be reminded that god hears that god knows that god loves that God hasn't forgotten. I, I've heard the refrain in my ministry many times. You know what, Dave? I've gone through this thing and that thing and this thing. And, you know, I'm just about to give up. It seems like God doesn't care. And what we're going to see in this psalm is God really does care. He is there. He is present. And he desires for us to call on him in the midst of the most intense suffering and the midst intense trials of our lives. Now, if we want to live with hope and spiritual strength in troubling times, we're going to follow the example of the Huguenots when they were persecuted by King Louis. The French king forbade the possession of Bibles or the Psalter, and so the Huguenots committed large portions of Scripture to memory, especially the Psalms. In fact, one group of Huguenot exiles marched into Geneva, Switzerland, where they had taken refuge, singing Psalm 74.1, which says, O oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Well, three years later, when the military victories permitted their return to their homes, they sang the same Psalm's triumphant conclusion in verse 22. Arise, O oh God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all day. Now, if we will make it clear, our chief concern to place God's word into our hearts and minds, we will have a similar resolve in trying times and a lively hope for the future. That is why we just talked about the importance of reading and studying and meditating on the word. That is why we just talked about the importance of sitting under sound biblical preaching and doing whatever it takes to get into a church uh, and and. Forget about the preference of uh, even if the preaching is poor and the worship is not if the preaching is, I should say, even if the preaching, the preaching is biblical, but it's poorly delivered. You can stay in that church, even if the, the worship is is biblically and sound, but it's poorly delivered, poorly executed. You can still stay in that church. Now, you may not want to stay in that church, but that's another matter. That's a preference. And we need to understand the difference. But we need to be, the point is, is that I'm making, is we need to be shaped and molded by the Word of God. 
We need to be shaped and molded by the truth that is in the, the word, not our preferences. Too many times, especially as American Christians, we are molded and shaped not by the word, but by our preferences. My preference is for this type of worship. My preference is for the, the preacher to be a charismatic preacher. Well, we've seen what that does. It elevates the worship leader. It elevates the preacher to a place where that of authority that they were never meant to have. An undue of ultimate authority, which they are not to have. Now, we are to honor our pastor. We are to esteem them highly in their work in the Lord. But they are not our they are not the senior pastor. They are not the chief shepherd. God's word reveals to us our need of Christ. And that need is great. And this is why we need to prepare our hearts through reading and studying and meditating on God's word, taking it home into our hearts. Because we are all going to face trying times, difficult times. And we need to be prepared for those times. So let's consider next, God's people may have hope in God's salvation. And in the final Excuse me. In the final statement of the opening lament, the psalmist complains that God seems to have his hands in his pockets while his people are destroyed in verse 11. When it says, Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. And so the second section of the psalm, verses 12 through 17, it provides reasons why the psalmist is confident that God will answer and deliver his people. For all the frustration expressed in his lament, he shows us that Christians always have hope in God's salvation. And as important as it is to learn God's plans in the Bible, as we've talked about, it's even more important to learn of God himself and his great saving works. James Boyce says, Earlier he had asked God to remember Israel. Here he remembers God. And remembering what God is like, what promises he has made, and how he has redeemed his people in the past— that's our chief source of hope in a dark and dangerous world. And with this in mind, what we see in Psalm 74, 12, it makes a statement of confidence in God that turns Psalm 74 from a bereaved lament into a confident prayer. And here is that turning point that lifts the lament into a bold appeal when he says, Yet God, my King, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. Now, this basic confidence in God's saving power is joined to three specific reasons why the psalmist can trust in God, even with Jerusalem and ruins, reasons that Christians today can share. Well, the first reason that is given is the opening verse recalls God's sovereign election of his people's salvation. In verses 1 through 2, we see that Israel is a sheep of your pastor and your congregation the tribe of your heritage. Even Mount Zion, the Temple Mount, cannot be abandoned, since it was chosen by God as the place where you've dwelt, verse 2. And true, the Israelites have broken their covenant with God by worshiping false gods and refusing to obey the word of God. But their place in God's salvation was secured by His grace according to His sovereign choosing. Paul specifies that the true Israel has always been the Israel faith in Romans 2, 28 and 29. And thus God's election of Israel is fulfilled in the Christ-believing church. But even in the Old Testament, believers could look to God's election and know that he had not forgotten his people. You see, Christians can take strong comfort in knowing they were chosen by God, whose sovereign grace cannot fail. 
In, it, in his Good Shepherd discourse, Jesus states in John 10, 28 through 29, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And though believers may suffer greatly in this world, and while even true believers may grievously sin against God and even come under his frowning discipline, those who trust in the Lord know that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, according to Philippians 1.6. And a second reason to retain confidence in God is his costly redemption of Israel in former days. Psalm 74.12 identifies Israel as the congregation which you have purchased of all which you have redeemed. And this statement likely refers to Israel's exodus from Egypt when God redeemed his people from bondage and caused his angel of death to pass over their houses because of the blood of the Lamb. This theme of redemption is probably expressed in the apolectal end times languages of verse 13 and 14, which says, You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. See, God divided the Red Sea waters to permit his people to pass through before drowning and even pursuing the Egyptian army. And when verse 15 says that God split open springs and brooks and dried up ever-flowing streams, this refers to the provision of God of water to Israel in the desert and his stopping up of the Jordan River so that his people could pass through. The reference to monsters and even leviathans is, is thought by scholars to symbolize God's defeat of mighty Pharaoh and the power of Satan that stood behind him. Imagery similar to this is used in the book of Revelation to depict Christ's victory over the great red dragon Satan in Revelation 12, 1-9. And the point is, is that the God who exerted such power in delivering his people from bondage in Egypt and brought them into the promised land would not suffer to see his people utterly destroyed by the Babylonians. And Christians look back on an even greater redemption in the atoning death of Jesus. If God has redeemed us with the blood of his own son, is there any chance that he will leave us to be destroyed by the powers of darkness? You see, Jesus instituted the sacrament of the Lord's Supper so that his people would remember his death for their salvation. Is there any chance that God will forget the great offering of his son to redeem his flock? Spurgeon assures us that by remembering our redemption in Christ, believers gain a great hope amid our trials and a strong plea in our prayers to God. When he says, let us put him in remembrance, let us plead together. Can he desert his blood-bought and forsake his redeemed? Can election fail and eternal love cease to flow? Impossible. The woes of Calvary and the covenant of which they are the seal are the security of the saints. Third, the psalmist settles its hope on God's almighty power as creator. Now, some scholars believe that the reference to God subduing sea monsters and the great Leviathan is not to the Exodus, but to God subduing the forces of chaos in his ordering of the world. The Babylonian creation myths speak of the sea monsters being subdued and Timia, a Leviathan parallel, being slain. And the psalmist may be saying that Israel's God is the true creator who has power over Tuma and rebellion. And yet, in any case, there's no doubt that Psalm 74, 16-17 highlights God's power as the Creator, who has subdued and ordered nature, saying this, 
Yours is the day, yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights in the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and the winter. In fact, Psalm 121, it encourages us that God is always able to help us because he made heaven and earth, Psalm 121 says. And Christians can likewise draw strength to know that the God to whom we pray is the creator of all that is, and thus who has more than enough power to save us from any foe. David Dixon writes, As the Lord has set bounds to the sea, bounds and borders to every kingdom, to summer's heat and winter's cold, so he can do, and so he hath done, and so he will do unto all the troubles of his own people, to all the rage, power, plots, and purposes of their enemies. Next, let's consider God's people can have confidence in prayer. And now remembering God and considering his sovereign election, his costly redemption, his almighty power that have changed Psalm 74 from a desperate and even confused plea to a confident, purposeful prayer. The final stanza, verses 18 through 23, is going to give us five petitions that Christians today may equally offer to God. And the reasons that the psalmist provide for God to decisively intervene will also provide us with strong reasons to call on the Lord for salvation in our time of need. First, the psalmist calls for the overthrow of evil for the sake of God's honor. Psalm 74, 18 says, Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs and a foolish people reviles your name. The Babylonians who boastfully paraded their standard on Mount Zion were an affront to Israel's God offering a direct challenge to his glory. And we are reminded of a similar appeal made by King Hezekiah when the Assyrian king Sennacherib besieged Jerusalem. On the instructions of the prophet Isaiah, Ezekiel went into the temple, spread before the Lord the, the mocking terms of surrender given to him by the Assyrian ambassador and prayed for God's help in Isaiah 37, 17 through 20, which says, Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear, open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he had sent to mock the living God. And so now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. And so God answered Hezekiah's prayer by sending the angel of the Lord to slay 85,000 soldiers of Sennacherib's army in a single night, saving his people and defending the honor of his own name. And that is that Christians may likewise pray for God to defend his honor against those who mock and even revile his people. And the psalmist's second petition here is a plea for God's mercy for his weak and needy people in verse 19 of this psalm. When it says, Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beasts. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. You see, the turtle dove, it symbolizes the church's vulnerability and is an expression of affectionate endearment. H.C. Leipold writes, To surrender his people like a gentle and harmless dove into the power of the wild beast would be a heartless act that God cannot become guilty of. The Gospels similarly show how Jesus was moved with compassion for the needs of the, the sick, the weak, and the hungry. And when we pray to God for compassion in His name, Christ appeals to the mercy of His Father. In fact, James 5.11 explains that by studying Scripture, we learn the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful, how eager God is to answer a plea to act in mercy for the weak. Third, the psalmist appeals to the covenant promises of God. 
Psalm 74.20 says, Have regard for the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. God had pledged himself to uphold the throne of David forever in 2 Samuel 7.16. The Old Testament covenants of Abraham, Moses, and David are ultimately fulfilled in Christ alone, as we see in 2 Corinthians 1.20. And so that Christ's church can be certain that God will preserve her against the greatest of foes. In fact, the eternal covenant between the Father and the Son declared uh, in John John 6.40 that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Spurgeon exclaims, Here is the master key. Heaven's gate must open to this. God is not a man that he should lie. His covenant he will not break, nor alter the thing that hath gone forth out of his lips. Christians may present to God his covenant promises to grant eternal life to all who believe, thus calling on God to preserve us from every spiritual foe. Now, the the psalmist's fourth petition, it concerns God's praise when he saves his people by his grace. Verse 21 says, Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. If not the downtrodden, uh, if the believers humbled themselves and prayed for God for help but were denied, this would shame the worship of the Lord. And yet by answering with help, God will instead gain praise from the hearts of those who trust his word. Jesus says this in John 4:23 that the Father is seeking people who will worship him in spirit and truth. That is, a desire for God's glory should always be present in our prayers, and when we seek God's aid for His own praise, we can be confident of His intervention from heaven. Now, the psalmist's fifth and final petition, it concerns God's uh, cause in the world. When he says this in verse 22 through 23, Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. You see, God's cause is bound up with the gospel, with his church, and with faith in the word of God. God is not ignorant as to the great clamor of his foes and the constant uproar of those who rise against him. And therefore, when the church is besieged, when biblical truth is despised, and when faith is persecuted, Christians may confidently appeal to God to strengthen the cause of his gospel and his church. And so today, consider these five petitions. Whenever you find yourself praying to God in desperate need, you see, you may be bold, dear Christian, in asking God to defend his honor, to show mercy, to uphold his covenant, to gain praise through grace, and uphold his cause in the world. These are God-centered, God-glorifying, God-dependent intercession, and these are a model for praying to God with confidence and success. Lastly, let's consider get that God's people have a Savior. You know, Psalm 74, it's shown us that God's people can be greatly afflicted and yet have hope in God's salvation and confidence in God in prayer. And one might therefore ask how this particular psalm was answered by God in Israel's history. Before answering that, we need to remember that God had committed to punish Israel through the exile in Babylon. And therefore, the psalmist generation would suffer great humiliation, deprivation, and affliction in a far-off pagan land. And as far as history was concerned, Nebuchadnezzar had succeeded in his aim to subdue and dominate the people of Israel permanently. But the Bible shows that Nebuchadnezzar's intentions would in fact be frustrated by God's faithful intervention to save his people in answer to their prayer. 
God protected and prospered the Jews in Babylon, as the book of Esther records. And when the prescribed 70 years had passed, God was faithful to arrange a restoration to Jerusalem. As told in the book of Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, and Zechariah, God defended his own honor. He had mercy on his afflicted people. He kept his covenant. He restored worship to his name. He advanced the cause of his salvation in the world. In short, biblical history shows that within a century, God answered every prayer so boldly brought to him in Psalm 74. I mentioned earlier that Psalm 74 and, and that the turning point of this psalm is found in verse 12. Where the psalmist states, God, my king, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You see, the Christian who reads this verse in the original Hebrew cannot fail to think of Jesus Christ. The reason for this is the Hebrew word for salvation is a plural form of the word Yeshua. And Asaph praised God for making Yeshua salvation in the earth. This happens to be the same name that God's angel told Joseph to give the virgin-born child of Mary. You shall call his name Jesus, which in Hebrew is Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins, according to Matthew 1.21. And here is the ultimate answer to the cry of Psalm 74. Why, O God? God works salvation in the earth by sending his son Jesus Christ to be the Savior and Lord who redeems his people from sin, from death, and defeat. Christian parents have heard all heard their children blurt out pat answers to unexpected Bible questions. A boy has let his mind wander and his parents ask him to explain why he neglected to pay attention, what, what, what he had just heard. And often not knowing what, what had been read, the child will wisely exclaim, Jesus, thinking this is a likely answer. Well, the child is right, for Jesus is the correct answer to virtually every question pertaining to the God's saving work. Every Christian can look to the cross and they can see God's gift of love that redeems us from sin and secures us from eternal life. And so whatever troubles, whatever failures or defeats we are suffering, sometimes because of the fallen world and sometimes because of our own sin, Christians can find hope in Jesus. Verse 12, God is my king is from of old. Every Christian may claim sending Jesus as savior for the world. And so Paul thus reasoned that the needy believer who possesses Christ by faith can be sure that God will never permit him or her to fail. Romans 8:32 says, "He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things?" And thus, even when we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, we are more than conquerors through him who strengthened, who loved us, according to Romans 8, 36 and 37. And today, as we wrap up, you might be wondering, Lord, where are you in the midst of my suffering? Where are you in the midst of our affliction? Well, I remember in the midst of going through my parents' divorce, which took a long time to get over as a child, because there was a lot of emotional and mental abuse associated with it, and just the pain of, of, your ch of your parents getting divorced. I remember one of my mentors in that period of time saying, Dave, the Christian life is about perspective. You see, it was it, during this time, my perspective was so focused on the pain and the suffering. What I, what I had forgotten is the person and the work and the glory of Christ. Maybe that's true for you too today. Maybe in the midst of your own suffering, in the midst of your own hard times, in the midst of your own affliction, maybe in the midst of, of a great season of persecution perhaps. 
You yourself have forgotten the perspective, the divine perspective outlined in the word of God. And can I just say, the Lord has not forgotten you. He sees you. He knows you. If you are bought by the precious blood of Christ, you are his and he is yours forever. And if you're not, I plead with you today to, on the basis of Acts 16.31, to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and to be saved. You and your household. There is no other way and there is no other name to be saved under heaven other than through the Lord Jesus. You see, dear Christian, there, there is hope and there is help in the word of God. And what we've seen today is that this psalm offers us incredible hope and help. The Lord is not disinterested, even in the midst of your difficulty and hardship and trial. The Lord sees you. The Lord knows you. And he cares for you. And I, so I plead with you today, fix your eyes, as Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 says, on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. You may not be going through a time of difficulty, but you might know somebody. And you can walk with them. You can help them. You can do as Galatians 6, 1 says, and bear each other's burdens and thus fill the law of Christ. And the law of Christ is the great commandment to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, as we see in Matthew 22, 37 through 40. Well, today, like I said, we've, we've covered a lot of ground. We've talked about affliction. We've talked about suffering. We've talked about how to deal with affliction and suffering and even to grow through it. So as we wrap up, I just plead with you one more time. Look to Christ in the midst of whatever situation you're in today and comfort those and walk alongside of those who are experiencing difficulty and suffering with the same grace of God that you have, that they have in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word gives us instruction on how to face our suffering and our affliction as we are living in this post-fall world. You are such, that is such an amazing thing. You know the condition of our hearts so well. You know the condition of our world so well. You hand tailor the situations of our lives under your providence for your glory, for the good of your people, for the praise of your name, for the building up of the church, so that we might together, we might proclaim the excellencies and the glory of Christ in the word. What amazing God you are. What a God of grace that you are. Lord, we love you. Help us, Lord, to walk alongside and comfort those who are afflicted, who are struggling. Help us to point them to Christ. Help us to to be reminded today in the midst of our own lives, in the midst of our own challenges, to look to Christ by faith in the gospel, which you have given as revealed in your word. And Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you so much that your word is true, that your word is reliable, that your word is clear, that your word is binding. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for sending your son to pay the penalty that I justly deserve in my place for my sin, for being buried for me and rising again on the third day. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. 
If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.